At Morgan Stanley, old school hard work meets bold new thinking. At 88 years old, we still see the world with the wonder of new eyes, helping you discover untapped possibilities and relentlessly working with you to make them real. Old school grit, new world ideas. Morgan Stanley. To learn more, visit morganstanley.com slash why us. Investing involves risk. Morgan Stanley Smith Barney, LLC. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. Thank you, Carl. Thank you, Sarah. Welcome to the Halftime Report. I'm Dominic Chu in for Scott Wapner today, front and center this hour. Was this week a turning point for the markets? And what's in store for investors as we head deeper into what has historically been one of the weakest months of the year. Our investment committee is here to help navigate you through all of it. Joining me for the hour, Bryn Talkington, Steve Weiss, and here on set with me, Shannon Sakosha and also Jason Snipe as well. Let's get a check on where we stand at noon Eastern time right now. Generally a mixed market overall. The Dow Industrial is up about one quarter of 1%, just around 67 points. You can see this S&P up about a similar percentage amount about 13 or so points up there, 44.54, and then the NASDAQ composite, 13,804, just up about one half of 1%. And by the way, the 10-year note yield, because those interest rates factor so much into the overall market narrative at this stage right now, just sitting right at around four and a quarter percent for the benchmark 10-year Treasury note yield. So that brings us to the point of our discussion about whether or not this week and the volatility that we've seen, specifically in key parts of the market, is a turning point for what's been a very bullish year so far. Shannon, I I wonder, there has been stuff said in the past about how volatility can be indicative of a change in trend. And we've seen some of that play out over the course of the week. Do you feel as though this is one of those times where that big tech, media, and telecom trade that's been powering things so far this year is due for a bit of a breather? Well, our views at at MB Private Wealth are really founded in the fact that if we look at the multiple expansion that we've experienced in those areas, particularly in, you know, whether it's the Magnificent Seven or, or, you know, sort of the top 10 stocks um, from an S&P 500 perspective, that, you know, you have to justify that expansion of the multiple in some way. And so one of the things that's concerning potentially around this uptick in volatility is that we believe that some of this uptick in volatility is due to central bank policy. And one of the things we looked at really closely over the course of the last couple of years has been what does the what is the Fed and the ECB being data dependent really mean for the markets and what it implies is that there is going to be increased volatility around that data so these data releases how many times have we all said the most important jobs report ever the most important CPI since print. the last one right exactly <laughs> but that but that trend has been um, really driven home by the Fed, particularly over the last several weeks, in talking about, yes, you should actually be paying very close attention to these data points. And oh, by the way, we don't have a lot of company-specific data coming out right now. So it amplifies that potential volatility. We've got some big data coming out next week. We don't have a lot of earnings um, uh, reports left. We don't have a lot of additional data from from management. We're going to enter into the blackout period, really, kind of prior to the next earnings season. And so I think that volatility is going to come along with this approach of us shifting back to central bank policy and understanding that there's some risk 
in some of these data points coming out over the next couple of weeks, which could upset the trend that has supported the outperformance of those areas. Jason, what's curious to me is if, you know, Shannon mentioned the idea that there's been a, a decent amount of multiple expansion. Right. The amount of money we pay for every dollar of earnings a company generates or expected dollars that they generate in the future. It's all happened despite rising rates. Right. That's not supposed to happen. That's not the conventional wisdom about how markets work. Right. So is this, again, the turning point? Because maybe this does go back to what it should be, which is higher rates means multiple contraction. Right. So for me, I think there's, there's a couple of things at play. I think about the UL, UAW as an example, as a potentially an inflationary piece where, you know, from a negotiation standpoint, they got to they figure out what they want to do from a wage perspective. I think about the mixed bag of commentary we've heard from the Fed this week, right? Some folks are on, in the camp that, hey, look, we are, we're good. You know, there's no more policy that's necessary to move forward. And others say, to Shannon's point, we need to be data dependent. And I think that puts a lot more pressure you know, on these numbers. And yes, CPI core is supposed to flow down some you know, next week. But you know, on, on the top line, on the headline, I should say, is, uh, is supposed to float a little bit higher. And that's due to oil prices that we've seen. What's interesting is what we're showing viewers right now, listeners on Sirius XM Channel 112, the Fed commentary has been rather dovish. We got Dallas Fed President Lori Logan saying, could be appropriate to skip a rate hike. We've got you know, New York Fed's Williams saying we've gotten monetary policy in a very good place. We have a restrictive stance. It, it, we've seen some studies out of the Chicago Fed saying that maybe with lag effects and everything else that we could be at a good place with regard to kind of easing up on some of these you know, issues that we have in the economy. So uh, Steve, if you take a look overall at the picture for the economy, this is a situation where the market's debating about whether or not we are at a good place right now and that if you factor in those quote unquote long and very variable lags in Fed policy, that maybe things will get better in the coming months and that we can avoid a recession. Is the market already pricing that in? Yeah, I mean, not to parse words with you, even though even though I enjoy doing it, Dom. Um, we know but you do. It's not the last. It's not the last inflation report that's important. It's not the last jobs report that's important. It's the next one, because the last one's already been absorbed into the market. And the next CPI number is important, but it's only important if it goes through the outer bounds of what's expected. So by that I mean you've had the Fed, and this will get to the answer to your question, the Fed's come out. I'd also say they've not been dovish. You can't say that staying in a restrictive policy is dovish. It's not. Right now, they're still hawkish. Dovish would be a real problem because dovish means they see the need to ease because they believe that the economy is way too tight. So I think that's what's really translating into the market. When they're saying we're at a good place, we're going to be data dependent, which has been consistent, they're saying we think the market's about to go through a rough spot. That doesn't necessarily mean a hard landing. It doesn't mean a recession. But it means that there's been an unusually long lag between the start of our tightening cycle and where the impact is being seen. So that's what the market's worried about at this point. Not worried about September. Throw that crap out. It's just a good talking point. The market's down on average. You go over the last 50 years between 6 
60 bips and 1%. What's that mean? You recover completely and more than that in October. And markets just aren't that easy. We'd say, okay, seasonally, September, tough month. Let me let me go hide somewhere. So forget it. Great talk point, great way to open the show. Means nothing to what real investors do. Now, if the Fed is very concerned or is evidencing this concern, which I believe they are, that our rate hikes are starting to take effect in the market, then the market is going to reverse that multiple expansion. And we've seen that. Look at where Microsoft's trading. Look at where Facebook, Meta's trading relative to the peaks. So they've come down somewhat. So you've seen that multiple suppression somewhat. And I think that could continue because I do believe the economy will be weakening. We'll still see strong data points like ISM, but overall, the trend, I believe, is lower. And that's why, again, the market's been weakening over the last month or so. Bryn, Bryn uh, Steve makes a, a, a very excellent point here with regard to what we think should be important for investors and, and what is maybe just noise. But what we have seen over the course of the last couple of weeks and maybe a little bit longer than that, arguably even longer with certain value sectors like energy, is a shift away from some of these technology, communication services type sectors back into those traditional value ones like energy. And by the way, the commodity prices have underlied that. We've seen a lot of the stocks that benefit from those prices really participate in this rally. Is this something that has legs? Are we due to kind of mean revert a little bit here? and take some of that money off the table for technology and go back towards certain value sectors? Yeah, yeah, good question, Dom. Well, first, you know, it pains me to say this, but I actually agree with what Steve said. Um, I actually agree with what Steve said. It I pains thought, all I thought of it us, was uh, spot so. on. <laughs> I know. <laughs> um, so many people have no, an aversion that... to being right by not agreeing with me more often. <laughs> you know, the clock is right twice also, too. And so, um, and so I think, though, in, in, all, in, all, in all seriousness, you know, tech has had this amazing run. And so the past few days, I've seen people saying, oh, Apple's lost $200 billion in market cap. It's like, who cares? The stock's up like 35% for the year. So you have these, like, and Tesla's up 100, NVIDIA's up 200 and change. You've had this just monster run in these names. And so, you know, trees don't grow to the sky. And so I think you're having a some technical resistance. I do think tech in the short term is really range bound between that two and 10 year. And so as long as the two is bumping along five and the 10 year is bumping along four and a quarter, I think that tech remains challenged over the next couple months. And I think this rotation um, moving out of or we'll say reducing some tech and going into energy specifically you know we're very very bullish on energy from a secular perspective and I think when you look at you know energy prices are going to stay high I think that 80 is the new 60 and that OPEC and especially the Saudis they hold all the cards and they have an incentive to keep the oil markets tight and so I think, especially going into winter, energy is going to continue to catch a bid. Inventories are incredibly low. And so I think you also put the fundamentals around energy as a value trade. You have free cash flow yield of over 10 percent. And these companies have continued to be very disciplined and saying, hey, we want to give back to our shareholders. 
and not just reinvest into new into new oil wells and have really high you know cash dividends and those variable dividends and so I think that mosaic is why you're seeing people transition back into energy which I think over the next few years will treat investors much better than it did the prior decade when it was just really a feast or famine asset class and very hard to stay invested long term in. All right. So amid that, I also want to point out, and, and some people saw the graphic up there, as we talk about the macro picture, Bank of America in their weekly fund flows study show and Michael Hartnett over at B of A pointing out that cash and cash investments had the largest inflow in nine weeks. Also, technology, those stocks had the first outflow in 11 weeks. Telecoms saw the largest outflow since September of 22 and U.S. small caps had the largest outflow in 11 weeks. So this is obviously something that's starting to resonate with folks out there. And the reason why I want to bring this up is because our next guest is calling for more downside risk across the major indices and specifically technology. So let's bring in Jonathan Krinsky. You know him, friend of the show, chief market technician over at BTIG. Jonathan, I laid out a lot of cases here for why investors overall are seeing more risk out there and want to be more averse to it. Does this, though, spell the end of this particular bull run that we've had so far in 2023? Hey, Dom, good to see you. Um, you know, look, I think when you look at the market in 2023, um, it continues to be kind of a, a tale of two cities, if you will. Um, we know S&P and NASDAQ cap weighted have done very well. Um, but if you look at below the surface, equal weight, mid caps, small caps, they're all hitting uh, actually multi-month, if not multi-year, relative lows to those markets. And you know most of those indices remain uh, five, eight, nine percent below where they were even in February. So you know it's it's a bit of a of a bifurcated market. Um, and then we continue to see more uh, signs of, of breakdowns when we look at um, you know kind of the deep cyclical areas, whether it's uh, you know the financials continue to struggle, the consumer stocks, retail, the restaurants. Uh, we, we were on <coughs> with Scott this week talking about the restaurants, and you know that makes sense as we've seen uh, crude oil continue to push to the upside. There's a pretty good inverse correlation there between crude and the restaurants. So there's just a lot of things under the surface that are inconsistent with what you typically see in renewable markets, despite the fact that the S&P is still up something like 15%, NASDAQ up 40% on the year. So ultimately, we do think um, those those cap-weighted indices will catch down to kind of the average stock. Um, it's just been, uh, you know, very resilient to this point. So, so the resilience is interesting because the markets overall have been facing, Jonathan, many of these same kinds of points and same kinds of headwinds for the better part of the year. There's been a reason to be negative, yet the market has kept going higher in the in the face of that. I also want to point out, because we want to bring some balance on here and just to kind of give a little bit more fodder for this conversation, uh, Fundstrat's Tom Lee, who was who, also very, very evident to people here on this show, talked about the tailwinds that will prevail in the month of September, saying that there's a favorable list of tailwinds building. S&P 500 profit estimates are rising for the third quarter for the first time in two years. Fed officials seem to be shifting away from data dependence. CPI next week should be soft, and we've seen some evidence, although energy prices notwithstanding. The put-call ratio, the sentiment with, the, with regard to the options market, is the highest since March of 2023. And cyclicals are leading with energy, tech, and FANG, some of the best sectors over the past month. Those seem like, yes, they are rosy reasons to be positive, 
Talk to us about why some of those things could be debunked over the course of the next few weeks. Well, first, uh, you know, we like energy, we, but, you know, that, as, as last year proved, that's not necessarily the best sign for the market when energy starts leading. Um, there's also, uh, you know, this, this news reacting, the market reacting to the news, um, it continues to be bad news is good news, good news is bad news for the market right now. Ultimately, we think bad news will become bad news. And, you know, if we take two um, examples over the last week or so, when we had jolts last week, uh, very, uh, you know, showed fewer job openings, negative news. The market reacted very positively, as uh, you know, anticipated Fed might be done and and potentially um, cuts cuts coming next year. And then conversely, uh, this week when we had the hot ISM number, better data, market reacted very negatively. So we're still in that feedback loop where bad is good, good is bad. Um, but again, if you look at um, you know, kind of the you know, some of the consumer-oriented data points, some of the you know what the retailers are saying, what some of the um, you know consumer finance names are saying, what delinquencies ticking up, all of this is you know continues to be a headwind. And then the last point I'd make, you know, mega cap tech continues to kind of trade defensively. Again, like we said, when we saw that bad news, um, investors really reacted strongly and. and went into the kind of the perceived safe haven of mega cap tech. You know, ultimately, I, I don't know that that's going to play out um, the same way as we had into the fourth quarter. But, you know, for now, that's how investors are, are taking it. All right. And Jonathan, before we let you go, just so we can put a point on this for some of the, the viewers and listeners out there, what exactly is the degree of downside that we could see? Look, I mean, it's it's always difficult to say, um, you know, until we get there. I think the August lows certainly are are in play um, for you know S and P and Nasdaq. Um, so there's some decent downside in the short term to that point. And then beyond that, again, you're you're going to need to see uh, mega cap tech really break down. And even though we've seen you know like Apple and Nvidia pull back a little bit, there continues to be rotation into some of the other Fang names. So really, to get that move, you know, back to 4,200 in the S and P, which we do think is possible later this year. Year, you're going to need to see full, you know, full-scale selling across the fan complex, um, and so we think that's a possibility, but we just haven't seen it yet. All right, that's the perfect segue. It's almost like we planned this. Jonathan Krinsky, thank you very much. Have a nice weekend, sir. Thanks, Tom. All right, let's get to our chart of the day and the slide in. Guess what stock? Apple, right? That stock is up slightly today, but still pacing for its second worst week of the year. That's on the back of reports, multiple reports over the course of this past week, that China is cracking down on iPhone usage by government employees in government agencies and perhaps even in government-owned corporations. So this is big. Shannon, Apple, you could argue, is the most important stock in the U.S. market, maybe even the world. Why is Apple so critical and does it worry you to see the kind of movement to the downside that we have seen in Apple shares? Well, I think if you look at what, you know, the type of results that Apple's been putting up over the past couple of quarters, I mean, you're, you're essentially flat, right, on the, on the revenue line. And to justify the amount of, of expansion that we've seen in the multiple, I think that you need to expect that there's going to be continued drivers on, on the bottom line then for, for Apple unless we see a reacceleration in terms of that, that top line, which, which admittedly could come. Um, you know, they've got a pretty, um, I would say, positive 
read on demand for the 15 Pro, uh, which certainly could be at that reacceleration of growth that they're looking at in the top line. Uh, but there's also this question of, you know, is the consumer tapped out? And I think Apple's a great example of a premium, the pre perhaps the premium consumer brand, um, not only for sort of like kind of the top end, but also, you know, sort of down into middle income. And it's as we saw with companies like Dollar General, for instance, last week, there's a significant concern about lower income consumer behavior. But I think that that could creep into the, to the middle income tier as well, which would certainly potentially take some of the wind out of the sails for the 15. I think you mentioned China, um, you know, 19 percent of revenue for, for Apple. And so if you see um, you've got the new uh, the, the new Huawei uh, Mate 60 Pro that launched. And if that's a real competitor and they start to see some government intervention behind that, that's certainly a concern. But again, it goes back to the price that you're willing to pay. Are the earnings justified here? And it feels like they're going to have to do a lot on both the top and the bottom line to to justify that for investors who are more value conscious. Okay, so so interesting here. Uh, Apple commentary out of J.P. Morgan and the analyst team there. Uh, the headliner here is that outperformance is unlikely. So the setup we're talking about here, they've cut their target price to 230 bucks from 235, but they do reiterate their outperform rating. They think that second half share outperformance is unlikely given premium valuation, Shannon, to your point, and mounting China risks despite a low bar heading into this new product launch that we have coming up. The magnitude of the upside to shares in the remainder of the year is going to be limited by the outperformance already year to date, as well as an earnings multiple that is at a 61% premium to the second half of 2019 when Apple shares outperformed in a similar fashion. So they're looking at a historical precedent, a recent one for that. On the other side, I will just point out before I want to get some more commentary from you guys, Morgan Stanley, though, is framing this on a more positive side of things because that's what makes a market. More risk. Okay, the China risk has more bark than bite. Apple's two-day stock move suggests the market thinks recent China headlines will evolve into something broader. We believe that is unlikely. In a worst-case scenario, we see 4% revenue and 3% earnings per share downside, suggesting the stock move is now overdone at this point. Reiterate overweight and their $215 price target. So with that in mind, Bryn, I'll go to you because you own Apple. When it comes down to this kind of debate that we're having, if you're long the stock, what do you do? I think you have to ask yourself, are you long the stock as a trade or an investment? So let's just call it as a trade, you have to really marry the technicals with the fundamentals first. And if you just took the name off the stock, off the stock and just looked at the chart, it's broken below the 50, it's broken below the 100, and it's teetering. So if you just looked at it, would you buy that stock? No, because technically it looks weak. Fundamentally, though, we all use and love Apple's products. They have a recurring revenue machine. I will say, though, just you know, being pragmatic as an investor, the knock on Apple is if you take out the COVID, the COVID growth, which helped so many, so many technology companies, just so many companies in general, Apple's revenues have been really anemic. Their earnings always beat because they have a big share buyback. And so ultimately, to me, this stock up 30 plus percent for the year. This is a great year. I mean, so I sold calls against my position. I think it's at the high end of the range for the year. 
you know, and so I think I'm a long-term investor in Apple, but you do want to see that revenue growth. They can't just do financial engineering every quarter, buy back shares, buy back shares. You need top line growth. And I will say, you know, China's a very nationalistic country. And so if, if the government's saying, we don't like X, okay, X happens to be Apple, or we don't want our government employees. And if they bring that down to the local governments, that's a lot of people, Dom. I think that as a people, you know, they like to do what the government says. And so we'll, we'll see how that actually plays out. But ultimately, I want to see Apple get back to some revenue growth that justifies that multiple that Shannon was just, you know, referring to. Okay, so speaking of China, we want to bring another stock into this conversation because for China, it is very much about Apple's at least exposure, heavily so there. One company has a lot of exposure from a percentage basis, and that's Tesla, an American company doing a lot of business in China. Uh, Steve Weiss, I, I want to bring you into the conversation now as well, because from a trade perspective, Bryn brings up the idea of selling basically covered calls. She owns the Apple stock and sold calls against it, gets a little bit more yield. You're taking some steps in the options market as well, specifically with regard to what's happening with Tesla stock. Yeah, that, that, that's absolutely right. Um, so what's kind of strange is that China continues to show that, uh, she continues to show uh, that, uh, that he really doesn't, doesn't know what he's doing, in, in my view. You take a look at the three largest employers in China, three largest foreign companies operating in China. Apple is one of them, one of the largest employers. Curiously enough, so is Hanhai, which is a, you know, Foxconn, which is a Taiwanese company. So how do you figure that? So maybe they come after them next, or maybe they just nationalize their, their facilities. But in terms of, of Tesla, let me give you some numbers. I'm going to give you two stocks. I want you to identify which is which. One's selling at a PE of 84 times this year. Uh, I'm sorry, 72 times this year, 84 times next year, and these are according to Goldman numbers, and 56 times 25. The other selling at 76 times 48 multiple, again, that's lower than the 84 multiple, and 27 times their January 24 number, essentially the year that we're in. So twice, so the point is, one company's selling at twice the multiple of the other. Identify them. Well, the one that's selling at a low multiple, at a 27 PE, is NVIDIA. The one that's selling at 60 times is Tesla. Where does that make sense? Now, I'm not going to short the stock because Tesla's, Tesla's created more Uber drivers than any place else in the world. And by that, I mean people that short Tesla go belly up and they got to go drive a car for Uber. So I'm not going to do that. But I do think that there are some issues here. There's a lot more competition coming in. We see that. We've seen that by Tesla cutting prices by up to 25%. Part of that's for a new product coming out, but we don't see the big OEMs doing that. So you've got a very capital intensive business. You've got something that's extremely overvalued, increasing competition with 21% of their revenues coming out of China. China's EV companies are killing it there. 50% of Tesla's growth came from China last year. So, or in the last quarter rather. So that's why I did it. Now, it's going to work out? No, probably won't because I don't know who buys Tesla at these levels. It's sort of lunacy giving all the competition. But I figure it's worth a shot because if I were she, I would go after Tesla next and shore up my auto companies internally. All right, so, if, you're, 
your long so puts. So there are the facts now. At least your at least your risk yeah. is defined by buying those puts. The most you can lose exactly is the right. amount of money you put in there, unlike shorting a stock. Anyway, all right, Steve, thank you very much. Uh, we just want to hold it for one second because we have a news alert coming from the Fed and the new report they have on America's balance sheet. The Federal Reserve saying U.S. household net worth rose to a record $154.2 trillion in the second quarter, while household debt rose at a 2.7% annualized rate. Also, the Fed says federal government debt rose at an annualized rate of 12.7%. So new details now about the state of America's household and government balance sheet. Coming up on the show, the committee debates if green shoots are ahead for the battered banking industry. What Goldman Sachs CEO David Solomon had to say about that coming up next. Halftime is back after this break. You might be right. It's simple, but something you almost never hear in politics today, with each side more concerned about scoring political points than solving problems. I'm Bill Haslam, a Republican. And I'm Phil Bredesen, a Democrat. We're former Tennessee governors, and we invite you to listen to our podcast, You Might Be Right. Join us and guests like Al Gore, Paul Ryan, Judy Woodruff, as we take on important issues facing our country. Listen and subscribe to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee. Edward Jones, who knows that just like life, financial planning isn't only about long-term goals. It's about the moments big and small along the way. And when it comes to achieving everyday financial goals, Edward Jones works hard to connect you with someone you can trust professionally and personally. That's why they created their free financial advisor matching tool to help you find a financial advisor in your community. When you take the quiz and get your matches, don't expect just a list of resumes. You'll also see each financial advisor's story and personal interests. And when it's time to meet for the first time, they'll focus on your story, asking questions to understand where you're headed and why. Because Edward Jones knows that at the end of the day, behind every financial goal is a life goal. And that's what really matters. To learn more and find your financial advisor partner, take the quiz at match.edwardjones.com. I definitely do feel better about the the, uh, the capital markets, and if you ask me to to kind of look ahead, you know, over the course of the next few months, especially if ARM and some of these other IPOs, you know, go well, um, I think you're going to see a meaningful increase in activity. If you go back to the second quarter, investment banking activity in the second quarter was a, a ten-year low, and so it's not hard to improve off of that. But I think we could very quickly get back to what I'd call a more normalized level of activity in the capital markets, and that's obviously very, very good for Goldman Sachs. And I see a real improvement. Mm-hmm. I'm quite optimistic about what His I'm Armin. seeing. Quite optimistic. That was Goldman Sachs CEO David Solomon speaking exclusively with our own David Faber just yesterday on Closing Bell Overtime. Uh, Steve Weiss, I'll go to you because you actually own Goldman Sachs as a position. Do you agree with what Solomon said? I guess part of me thinks you have to because you own the stock still. That means you kind of buy into the Goldman thesis at least a little bit. Yep. First of all, I got a bone to pick with David. I was riding my bike on Sunday, and he just blew right by me like I was standing still. So uh, he may be in better shape than me, although I doubt it. Look, here's the story. David's talking about the pipeline maybe opening up sooner than expected. Right now, bankers sort of think the back half of 24 is when it will be. But does it really matter if you're taking a long-term view, whether it's the front half or the back half of 24? I can tell you that 
talk to bankers all day long at lots of firms. The pipeline is bigger than it's ever been for IPOs and for secondaries. Now, where you won't see the recovery is an M&A, and that's fat fee stuff. And the reason why you won't see a big recovery there, it was down 16%, is because interest rates are so high. So I don't think anybody expects it to recover, but when you're looking to buy a company, you're looking to finance it, there's a hell of a big difference between the affordability and your interest coverage, uh, you know, your, your debt service, when rates are at currently, you know, five plus percent and one percent. So you won't see that recover. In terms of Goldman specifically, look, Goldman, you know, what David said is that this is sort of normal in terms of partners leaving and having watched stock over the years and I've known a lot of partners here. That's absolutely true. But the press wants to sensationalize things. So I think that's starting to calm down. The rift that they're going to have at the end of the year is what they've been known for and what other companies have modeled it on. Rank your performers A to C and let's get rid of the C performers that aren't going to move up and let's continue to strengthen it. So they continue to have an extremely deep bench. They continue to have what I think is now a unique model on the street that will benefit the most from the capital, you know, sure. capital cycle returning because you've got Morgan Stanley that's going to Wealth Manager, also a great model. You don't have to pick one or the other. Right. So, so bottom line is I'm sticking with Goldman. I had added to it a couple of weeks ago. All right. So the Goldman story is interesting here because it's not the only financial out there, although when it comes to capital markets, it's them, Morgan Stanley, and the money centers. Jason, uh, you, you are a holder of financials. Yep. Goldman is a position. Would you rather Goldman or a money center bank that has capital markets activities a la J.P. Morgan Chase, Citigroup, or Bank of America? So I would, I would rather hold the pure play, to be honest with you. I think uh, Steve makes some good points in terms of capital market activity coming back online, hopefully next year. Um, obviously, Goldman has struggled this year. It's down 5%. Revenues were down about 8% in the last quarter. But I do think that activity will come back. I think the other, the other bank that I do like is Morgan Stanley. I think Morgan Stanley is a nice play in that space. And I'm, I'm less interested in the, the money centers with the yield curve being inverted and, you know, at being late stage, late cycle is, is not a great time for financials, but I do believe in, in, the, in the pure plays on IB. Okay, so Shannon, w with regard to the financials outlook overall, Jason brings up a good point. The yield curve is not conducive to lending long and borrowing short on a recurring yeah. basis. It's yeah. not good for profit margins. Is there anything that would catalyze people to get off the bench and say, yes, financials are there, absent a massive move in the yield curve? So let's just make sure there's really three parts of financials, right? There's big banks, there's regional banks, and then there's other non-bank financials. And so I think if we were talking about big banks, because I think that's where we want to think about, there's three factors. They're battling the macro, they're battling anemic loan and deposit growth, um, and they are potentially, you know, they have this threat of rising credit losses. So if you look at that and you say, okay, well, where are those three things not as much of a potential headwind and what other things could be a catalyst. So you look at capital markets activity, investment banking, you look at 
asset management, wealth management. Um, and I think that's where you really have to take uh, an eye towards, you know, big banks versus regional banks versus non-bank financials. And so if the catalyst potentially would be some stabilization in the rate environment, potentially, you know, continuing a, a potential bull steepener, right? But I still think that you want to make sure that you have a near-term catalyst and a near-term tailwind for some of these companies. So you have to look at the individual businesses in the underlying and don't think about financials as one big group because they really are differentiated. Too many of them to count, actually. Right. All right, guys, thank you very much. Let's now get out to Contessa Headline, who's got the news update. Hi, Contessa. Did you just give me a last name? Contessa. A new one. Contessa Headline. Contessa I like headline. it. It's got punch and power. Thank you, Dom. Congresswoman Nancy Pelosi announced she will seek re-election to her San Francisco Bay seat. This has just happened. The former House Speaker's decision comes as Democrats are trying to win back the majority in 2024. Pelosi was first elected to Congress in 1987 and has served as Speaker twice until Republicans took control of the chamber last year. The Federal Aviation Administration is ordering SpaceX to keep its Starship Super Heavy rocket on the ground. The administration said Elon Musk's space company needs to take 63 corrective actions before it can launch another test flight. The FAA concluded its probe of the April rocket that exploded mid-flight and says SpaceX has to take these actions to prevent another mishap. Protesters who disrupted a tennis match at the U.S. Open were charged with criminal trespass and disorderly conduct. In fact, one of the demonstrators glued his feet to the floor as part of the demonstration. Environmental activist group Extinction Rebellion took credit for the demonstration that called for an end to fossil fuels. Attention getting, Dom. Contessa News Update Brewer, thank you very much for the news update. You're welcome. All right. Up next, it's our call of the day, a big buy in the biotech space. Why one analyst thinks this stock, our mystery chart, could jump nearly 30%, 30% from here after being down 12% year to date. Halftime is back after this. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Demand for energy is projected to continue rising in the future. To help keep up, Chevron is increasing their U.S. oil and gas production, and they're innovating to help do it responsibly across their operations, including their Gulf of Mexico facilities, which are some of the world's lowest carbon intensity operations, helping supply energy that's affordable, reliable, and ever cleaner. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com slash meeting demand. Welcome back to the Halftime Report. Now it's time for our call of the day. It's Gilead being upgraded to buy at Bank of America. That firm saying shares are oversold at this point. And Bryn, it's our mystery chart. You own the XBI, which is the biotech ETF, on an equal weighted basis. What's your take on what's going on here with biotech? So if, I, if you take a step back, I would put Gilead more as like a biopharma. And, you know, biotech, these small names, has just not done well the past three years. The biotechs, the smaller names, but the biopharmas did very well in 2022. And then, as you've seen, 2023 is really a mirror image on the other side of 2022, where healthcare and biopharmas did so well. This year, they've underperformed along with consumer staples. And so what you get, though, with a Gilead, with a Bristol-Myers, with an AbbVie, you get these companies that have very high free cash flow yield. And so I still think we're late cycle. These companies have not done well this year. 
and they still have great product cycles coming up. And so I think if you're looking for a sector and companies individually that have all of these ingredients, this is a really great place to look because, Dom, it's so important. The free cash flow yield of these names, that allows you to do buybacks, to do M&A, to do dividends. It gives these companies so much optionality. So I think it's a great call. All right. So Gilead, Jason, is it a name that you would want to buy here or do you feel as though there are other names, whether they're smaller biotech or mid to large cap biopharma, as Bryn points out? Yeah. So for me, as it relates to healthcare, to, to Bryn's point, obviously, healthcare is underperformed this year. It's down around 2 percent. I prefer actually the device company. Stryker is my favorite name in the space. I think elective surgeries, all those type of procedures are coming back online. They have a nice suite of new products that are coming back, will be available in the next year to 18 months. And for me, that would be my focus as I'm looking at healthcare is the device companies. I think that's the play. All right, there you go. Coming up on the show, your software setup is up. Uh, two big names in the space are reporting results next week. Two names you very much know. The committee's take on those and the software trade coming up next. Keep it right here. Welcome back to the Halftime Report. Two big software names are set to report their results next week. We'll hear from both Oracle and Adobe. Both of those stocks are up significantly this year. So, Shannon, what is at stake for software and tech writ large because of Oracle and Adobe? Well, I think this is a continuation. Um, we talked about NVIDIA being like really the last big bellwether to report that had AI um, tangency. But I think that if you look at Oracle, for instance, I think investors are going to be really interested in hearing from them about their OCI infrastructure and the autonomous database and Cerner. When are those going to be a tailwind for growth, right? And I think that we can do that a little bit. We, can, we potentially see that a little bit sooner on the OCI side. Um, but again, there is going to be a lot of AI talk, I would anticipate, in this call. On the Adobe side, it's really about software cycles. Like, are we seeing, you know, how is, is demand stabilizing? Are we seeing those sales cycles be elongated? And, and how does that affect the individual companies? You might hear a little bit about AI on Adobe's report as well, because there's been a lot of talk about seat count, for instance. And does that replace, you know, do you potentially get AI replacement from seat count? A um, little bit of, little bit less pressure, I would say, in the narrative over the last few weeks on that. But both of these, you know, both these companies are going to talk about AI. But I think you're going to get also perhaps more importantly, a little bit more about demand and, and what, are those, the, what do those sales cycles look like. How much of this alphabet soup is important to you, Jason? Oracle, cloud infrastructure, OCI, artificial yeah. intelligence, yeah. AI, yeah. all of the other acronyms that we have out there? Right. Um, clearly, obviously, all these names have got a, a spike, a lot of them, I should say, and Oracle up 53 percent on, and in the last quarter, 17 percent revenue growth. So I, I like these software infrastructure names. I like the cloud. And I think, obviously, interest rates potentially could be a headwind going forward for a lot of these names, but they run a lot. You know, so I, I would likely be trimming. We miss, we miss this one, however, on Oracle, but I still like the space generally. Absolutely. And, and Bryn, I'll give the last word on this tech trade to you as well. What do we think? Is, is Oracle going to be important to the narrative as Adobe? Both of these names do have ties to artificial intelligence, maybe more so by other companies, but they're still important to the story, right? I think both of them are going to talk about AI. I bet they each mention them 20 or 30 times. I think these are two other companies that if you want to have a public market exposure to AI outside of NVIDIA, I think both Adobe and Oracle are the real deal. And so I think they have a good long runway ahead, even though they have had huge returns year to date. 
All right, Oracle and Adobe, the two big reports next week. Stay with us here. We've got the Grade My Trade segment coming up next on Halftime Report. We'll be back in just two minutes. All right, it's time for Grade My Trade. This one is for Steve Weiss. John in Hawaii owns 60 shares of XPO at an average price of 37 bucks a piece. Should he sell or continue to hold XPO? That's going to be an A-plus on the trade. Look, um, I don't think it's cheap in the, in the absolute, but relative to others like, like Old Dominion, it's exceedingly cheap. Management has done a phenomenal job correcting some of the issues with the company. Um, I think it's okay here for a hold. I would not be putting more money into it, given what I believe is the economic backdrop. But great trade so far. Congratulations. All right, you get an A-plus there, John in Hawaii. For Shannon Sakosha, JJ in Florida asks, what is your outlook on copper? Well, our view is that demand for copper could continue to grow. So if you look at EVs, solar plants, both you know require copper as an input. Mines have been declining from a yield perspective for many years. It takes 10 to 12 years to get a new mine online. And so this supply-demand mismatch, although there might be some substitution for copper as a component, uh, we don't think it's going to offset the potential for prices to rise. Okay. For Bryn. Randall in North Dakota bought Viper Energy at $7.92 back in 2020. Is this a good time to buy more of it? Great trade, Randall. You should be on the show. Um, we, we love Viper Energy. We love mineral rights on both the private and the public markets. So we, we own this. This is a secular tailwind. And for investors that don't know, mineral rights give you high margin, virtually no capex exposure to oil and gas and so from a secular tailwind i think it still has lots of room to run and finally for jason snipe matthew bought alphabet at 133 dollars and 65 cents he does not plan to hold it long is there any upside in the near term so I like Google, period, as a, as a long-term hold. But for a trade, the stock is, is trading at 136 right now. I think you're in at 133. Digital advertising has been strong. Google Cloud has finally been profitable. But I think heading into this seasonality period, which is difficult, I would actually unload the stock for a trade. Okay, there you go on the mega cap tech trade. Thanks, guys, very much. Final trades are coming up next from the committee on the Halftime Report. Keep it right here. Are you following the Halftime Report podcast? What are you waiting for? Look for us in your favorite podcasting app. Follow the Halftime Podcast now. Welcome back to the Halftime Report. Let's get a market flash from Kate Rooney on FinTech. Kate. Hey there, Dom. So Square, or the company now known as Block, the payment company having some outages in the last 24 hours. They posted just now on Twitter, X, as it's also known, uh, some updates here. They say since around noon Eastern, sellers have been unable to access accounts or process payments due to a systems outage within Square. We know you trust us with our business, they say. The situation and challenges uh, to running your operations are an issue here. They say they're truly sorry. They did also post an update in terms of service disruptions they're seeing. Part of the services are still offline, it looks like, but they have resolved some of the issues with the Square card, the online store, and payroll as well. But a lot, a lot of small businesses here dealing with those issues as well as the Cash App, which is 
the Venmo competitor. You can see it, though, hitting shares, Dom, down almost 5% at this point. So they are dealing with these issues. They seem to be slowly coming online, but it's been about 24 hours or so. Dom, back to you. Kate Rooney, we know you'll stay on top of that story on Block. Thank you very much for that. We've got final trades coming up, so keep it right here. We'll be back in two. Heads up, sports fans. This weekend on CNBC, we're taking you inside one of the most talked about sports business events of the year. Catch a special look at CNBC and Boardroom's Game Plan Summit tomorrow, 3 p.m. Eastern time, right here on CNBC. Now it's time for final trades. Bryn Talkington, you first. We talked a lot about the opportunities in energy and biopharma today. Cows owns 100 of the highest free cash flow yielding names in the Russell 1000. Energy and healthcare currently make up about 50% of the portfolio. All right, Steve Weiss. Uber, they're going to buy back more stock. Who would ever thought it would be a free cash flow story? But it is. CEO's done a great job. All right, Jason Snipe. Oil continues to move higher. I like Cass. There's been some momentum there. Near record highs as well. And Shannon Sakosha. They've underperformed this year, but don't sleep on electrification and clean energy growth in this sector. Utilities. Interesting. Thank you guys very much. I hope everybody has a nice weekend, including you viewers and listeners. That does it for the Halftime Report. The Exchange with Kelly Evans starts right now. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. All opinions expressed by the Halftime Report participants are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of CNBC, NBC Universal, their parent company or affiliates, and may have been previously disseminated by them on television, radio, internet, or another medium. You should not treat any opinion expressed on this podcast as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of an opinion. Such opinions are based upon information the Halftime Report participants consider reliable, but neither CNBC nor its affiliates and or subsidiaries warrant its completeness or accuracy, and it should not be relied upon as such. To view the full Halftime Report disclaimer, please visit cnbc.com forward slash Halftime Report disclaimer. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.